This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation today. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Now, we're right in the middle of a series we've titled Ready, Set, Think, and it's all about these unseen, unknown forces that influence our our thinking, our mental framework. And all of those unseen forces are shaping our thoughts before we even have them. Each of our conversations, it's digging a bit deeper into these ways that our brains are processing um, life and, and how all of that is influencing us to operate in the world. And we're so glad you're back with us because last week was your official catch up week. And since we didn't release a new episode, Hannah, I am so glad we're back because things are happening in the world and in life and we have not had a chance to discuss it. And I'm just beside myself. I I do think we needed a catch up week with this series. I have loved it, but it has been kind of intense and maybe even a little destabilizing because once you start thinking about the way you think like you can't stop seeing it right (laughs) it's it's like going and going and going you can't turn it off right it's like you're thinking and thinking and then you're thinking about how you're thinking (laughs) right so so yes I feel that same way I feel like maybe we should have called this series something like how to overanalyze or how to overthink everything. <laughs> that would be good. Maybe that could be our secondary title. <laughs> how to overthink it all we, with Hannah and Aaron. <laughs> That's right. Now, I do think there, there's a call for this, though. I mean, I don't want to dismiss the work we're doing because I do think we tend to underthink. We tend to just accept and not really process or evaluate what's going on. But on the other hand, you can really slip into these patterns of, overanalyzing everything. The tendency to overanalyze is there. And and I see it as kind of like a ruminating. Um, like once you get a thought in your brain, you can't settle it down. But I do agree that it's almost like I can overanalyze some things while neglecting others. And so in some ways, our attempt here to look at how we process, maybe it'll It'll shift us from some things that are less productive to some things that are more productive. And and then that way we become more astute thinkers, I hope, in time. Um, I've, I've noticed this, though, that as we've been discussing these things and every week coming at it from a different angle, I feel like it's enriching my processing and that awareness factor. It's like it's uncomfortable right now, but... I'm hoping that 
like with other things, it becomes a new normal and more comfortable. It doesn't seem quite so obvious that, oh, I'm thinking this way. (laughs) Hopefully it just becomes an adjustment where then it's natural at some point. Well, I think it might be like building strength or muscle in strength training and exercise where you do the work, you go through a new routine or a new form and like the next day or two, you can't move your body. And so you have this sense of like, well, what good was that? Like I thought I was this was supposed to make me stronger. And so when you do begin to see how our thought processes are shaped and you start to look for this and you start to analyze things, it can have that same kind of paralysis, right? <laughs> that temporary soreness in your brain where you actually feel less clarity. You feel like you have more information that you've got to process now. And so you're more sluggish or you feel like um, just this fog has descended because it's almost too information and it can be I find it paralyzing because then you're like, I don't know which information to sort out and which one to take in. But as with strength training physically, if you give it time, that soreness is going to go away. And as it does and your body builds new muscle, you're going to be stronger next time you go into the process. And slowly over time, I do think you're going to become a better thinker if you just keep with it and it won't be obvious to you until after you go into the gym and you know pick up a weight that you couldn't handle three weeks ago and the same way with our thinking like it doesn't become clear how our thinking has changed and grown and even strengthened until you encounter an issue maybe a month down the road and suddenly everything clicks into place about why it is that way and what's happening underneath it and where the real motives are coming from and that sort of thing. So I do think maybe folks will be surprised as they enter into this process that their brain or their thought process is actually strengthening and growing, but they won't know it until they encounter something down the road. That that parallel to strength training or um realizing that you are thinking a different way, that seems to line up right with this whole idea of autopilot thinking, um, the kind of the ruts we get into and we just do things automatically. And and we don't realize all of the things that are influencing us to go down that same path that we've gone before. And I noticed that in a a news article this week, and I thought, oh, this is such a perfect example for, for today's topic, because there are ways that we, we act and we move along with, with society and with thinking. And we don't realize that we just basically fed into the program that we've already been into. We've, we're just playing out those same ideas. And so when I saw this article, I'm like, oh my gosh, we got to talk about this. So Hannah, there is a new coat on Amazon and it is so great that it is now capitalized the Amazon coat like a proper noun because it is so popular. And the, the story here is that this coat is highly popular for no other reason than somebody said, oh, everybody's wearing this coat. And when they said everybody, they meant like 10 people in a 
in a certain neighborhood. And because people took that term everybody to mean great numbers of people, this coat went viral. And then everybody started buying the coat. So it was like the the phrase everybody caused everybody to then go buy the coat. Isn't that fascinating? So it's like it's popular because somebody said this is popular. Right. But it wasn't popular before. Right. Not really. No, I think I saw this. Um, it's triggering kind of a memory for me a couple, maybe six weeks, maybe even a couple months ago. I, I, I saw like, I don't know if it was on Instagram or somewhere where coming through with this article about this coat that you need mm-hmm. to buy. And the best part was it was really cheap. And so for me, yes. I hear the word cheap and I'm like, okay, <laughs> we'll Let's check, check it this out. out. <laughs> so I, the article basically, if I remember correctly, if it's the same coat, was that like all of these society, high society women up in Manhattan yep. or something were seen wearing this coat. And, and like the secret was it was an only an $80 coat and the average person can afford it. And now, and I will have to tell you, I stopped and I was like, oh, I could wear a high society coat for 80 bucks <laughs> and I could be popular. I could be on point. You'll be on the in ground. Right. Yep. And so then I actually looked at the coat. And it's like one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. And here's the terrible thing about living where I live, which is, you know, somewhat rural. And, you know, we're a working class community and whatever. We're not always on trend with fashion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I bought this coat, I would be the only one in my community that knew it was fashionable. I would be the only one. <laughs> but you would know it. You yourself would it know was, it. And everybody else would look at me and like, why are you wearing such an <laughs> ugly, awful coat? I will post the links in case all of you listeners out there haven't seen it because it is it is ugly. It's just a puffy down coat with these zippers that have these tassely things on them. It it does come in multiple colors, so that's that's a plus. You can pick which of these which ugly coat you would like, which color. But what's interesting is they're saying that it was just the small group of women in in New York who bought this coat and they were seeing it everywhere they went because they were in their own circle. So it's almost that idea of groupthink. You see it everywhere because it's only the people in your circle right, so you right. think That's everybody's wearing it. That's what I love about, well, everybody's saying this. Or everybody's thinking this. And I'm like, yeah, everybody in your little filter bubble. Yes, so small. And yet the the reporting on this, once people were saying everybody is wearing this coat, it actually drove sales up like 10,000 units in a very short amount of time. Yeah, now everybody is wearing it. And it's called a bestseller. And people are seeing it everywhere they go. Now there's an entire Instagram account where people are just taking photos of people wearing the coat in the wild. <laughs> and it's actually quite humorous and also a little weird. <laughs> like, oh, there's that coat. Oh, there's the coat again. And everyone is seeing it because it was cheap. And so everyone went out and bought it. This is such a good illustration of, like you said, how easily we're carried along by the community around us and our thinking. Um, And how, I don't know, some people would call it groupthink or how easily we can be influenced by the trend or I guess if the 
the extreme example would be kind of mob rule that something happens mm. when mm-hmm. people are operating as a group and how their thinking is affected that they would do things that don't make any sense necessarily but in that moment they're carried along by the mass thought process and so i you know i think that's definitely a way that our our thinking is shaped that we don't always recognize um and what i was also thinking was though on the opposite extreme some of us will be able to recognize it and so we'll push against it and they'll we'll say Mm -hmm. well i don't go along with groupthink i'm an independent thinker or i think for myself but i don't think that that's entirely accurate either we like to think that we have our own thoughts and that we are not just pulled along by the masses. I mean, who wants to think that they are basically locked in to what everyone else is doing, thinking, saying? No one no one wants to be that person. You want to be a person of your own mind, I guess. Um, the the danger there though is not stepping back enough to see that because we live in community there is really no way for you to be completely immune and so it is wise then to know that you are doing this <laughs> like you are part of groupthink in some way and being aware that it's happening so that you can at least assess where is groupthink influencing me more than what I would want it to? Or is that groupthink good or bad? Like, what are the ramifications of these thoughts that are are shaped by a collective group of people? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because if you think of even some of the uh, classic parables or stories that address groupthink, we talk about like the emperor's new clothes. Mm-hmm. Where you have this mass of people watching this stark naked ruler walk down the parade, and finally one of the young, fresh voices says, But he's not wearing anything, you know? <laughs> and we all think we're that person, but the odds are yes. not that we are. Like, <laughs> the odds are we are just someone standing in the crowd, you know? If you. Uh. Think about yourself in that story. We automatically uh, associate and align ourselves with that fresh voice that's calling out the um, groupthink. And it's so important to say, well, maybe occasionally on your best day, maybe. (laughs) But But not always. And the reality (laughs) is, even if we are pushing back against certain types of groupthink, we can very easily just ricochet into a different group so maybe we're pushing back against the group that we can identify but have we kind of come into a different kind of group think that we haven't yet learned to identify um and so it is i think just the humility to say something as simple as this even the categories i inherited for how i begin to think came from outside of me so even the way I look at things like the marketplace or society or the church, all of these things that I inherited came to me packaged in thought paradigms. And I am not a blank slate that just started putting ideas together. I was given certain shapes or forms or ways of looking at things. 
And I can question those and I can begin to evaluate them. But even then, I'm working within a certain epistemological frame that I've inherited. And that base level of humility has to be in place. I I so appreciate what you're saying there about our need to know that we are not a blank slate, that we, we actually come into our thinking without being aware of it. And we come into it influenced by so many people and groups and systems. And and that's really the, the great setup um, for this particular episode, which we're calling Thinking Together, because we are together in this. We are thinking like each other, whether we, we know it or not. And And to be able to step back a bit and take a look at how are my thoughts affecting how I see people, how I see myself, um, how I judge other people and what they are like. All of that is going to help us be more astute thinkers. And as as I was pulling together some ideas for this um, conversation, Hannah, I was thinking about my my own mental frame am i someone who easily goes along with the group whatever that group would be and what impact does that have and i started thinking about something in psychology called attachment theory how well do you attach to people and to groups and as I think about my my growing up experience and then how that shaped me as an adult, I moved around a lot. And so I always tended to feel more like the outsider, like not attached. And so it takes me a while to feel like I am part of a group or to feel like I belong places. And so I feel pretty comfortable just sort of being a fringe kind of person. Like it's like, oh, this is natural. Like I've, I've experienced this so much. Like it's, I can be this outside observer. And one way that I see this playing out is, is kind of simple, but I feel like we can take it a step further. One way that I see this coming out in me is that I don't feel attached to um, like local, local sports teams or even, even state sports teams like people get really excited and wear jerseys and and aside from the fact that I'm not a big sports person anyway I can't understand how you would feel like you are part of a team when you don't play on the team and so I don't understand it and so then I sort of feel like how did you get there like how is it that you feel so a part of it that you can roll right with all the excitement and and the fanfare I don't get that and so then I see that I I can play that out to a lot of things like any group where people feel like they're all in I'm like I don't get it how do you how do you feel that way and I don't know if that's something that um, in terms of attachment theory it's because of my moving around that I don't easily feel attached but I very quickly make assumptions about people because they do get so into it and I I just don't understand it yeah and I'm similar to you in that way that I my life experience has been as something of an outlier for different reasons, um, not an extreme 
outlier minority by any means, but definitely far enough from the center that I could identify it and feel different. And so I have a great deal of comfort of just being like, Psh, you know, I'm out here on my own. I'm the independent <laughs> right. thinker. Renegade. Renegade. Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do think is really essential, regardless of whether we see ourselves in the mainstream or outside of it, in both cases, we're defining our thinking by the relationship. We're, we're defining our thinking by membership in the group. And that's what's so important to understand. It's not just to recognize the categories we've inherited or how we think as a group, but so much of processing information in groups or in communities has nothing to do with the thinking, has nothing to do with the information, and has everything to do with the relationships and the membership in the group. And so the decisions or the opinions or the thoughts that you form actually signal whether you belong in the group or outside of the group. And so often our conforming to certain ways of thinking is really an attempt to be included. It's an attempt to build community, to build solidarity, to be part of the membership. And I don't know if, oh, it came out maybe a year or so ago. Did you see um, Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think? Did you ever see that? Oh, yes. I've seen it. It's on my list yeah, of it's, books it's that I, I really want to read. fantastic book. Really, really good, uh, insightful, clear kind of perspective on the, the way we process information. And he has a chapter um, titled Attractions as a descriptor for why we think, what we think, and how we think. And he really gets into this idea of the need to belong and how that shapes and fuels the conclusions we come to. And he, and he talks about, he draws on um, a story that C.S. Lewis actually wrote or uh, an essay, I'm, I'm not sure, it's about the inner ring. And so the idea is that there is this inner ring and the desire of everyone is to be inside that safe space. And they are, they are terrified of being left out of that inner group. And so... The way Lewis puts it is that um, this is a, this kind of framework can make a man who is not yet very a very bad man do very bad things. So things that mm. he would never all to be inside do, the group, right? All to be in the group, he will change and conform his thinking um, to whatever is necessary for membership within that group, and. It's our desire to belong that actually corrupts our thinking and even our morals. I believe that because even even as someone who tends to be, let's say, more fringe and feel okay with it, there are plenty of instances where when I do have that sense of belonging, I want to keep belonging. I don't want to be the person who's ostracized and shunned. And so it's so easy to keep on with, um, let's say, opinions or discussions or thoughts, but then moving into actions. And I'm aligning myself with a group so that I stay on the inside and stay as an approved member. That 
is dangerous. Um, there, there can be some good things if there are good, let's say, good standards that the group is trying to uphold. But at some point, if your whole goal is just to stay in their good graces, you're going to go down a road of compromise. Yeah. And I think you, you know, you make an allusion to the fact that if these things are built on honorable things, if there's good things being promoted by the group, that it can be a healthy thing. And I, and I want us to be careful too, that we don't fall into the trap of seeing peer pressure as always negative. And I mm, think we do. Yeah, that's a good point. So we have a highly individualized experience of life in modern Western context. We value individual rights almost as if it were a moral thing, right? And so we frame it that way. And so we could begin to think that any form of group pressure or any form of trying to maintain, stay within the group is necessarily suspect or necessarily compromised because it goes against the freedom of the individual. And I don't think that's the case. And I don't think that's the way scripture thinks. I mean, even if you think of something as simple as the church and the church having boundaries and it being this community shaped around certain convictions and beliefs and experience, you know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, there is a sense where those boundaries are meant to support you in your faith. And I think the difference between good group, good positive peer pressure is that it's not pressure, it's support. And and those two forces can function in very similar ways. And the difference is whether they're enabling you to accomplish or to do what is healthy. So there is a, a type of healthy group dynamic that does support us so that the weight of thinking and the weight of decision making and the weight of maintaining our faith, for example, doesn't fall exclusively on us. Like we're not the only thing holding it up. Our individualistic culture of right now, specifically United States, that's what we're talking about, um, that sense that we are autonomous beings, we are self-sufficient, we are independent. That basis, that that ideal that we have in the United States, I think very often gets applied specifically to faith and and we we tie them together very, very closely that um, you you can see it in a good way where we are called to um, leave everything behind, deny ourselves and follow Christ. So then it is like, okay, I'm going to sacrifice these things to follow the Lord. But that doesn't mean everything in our faith is individualistic. Um, There are good things in different cultures, different countries that really are coming from more of a, a collectivist mentality where they value the group over the individual. And that means that there is a higher value of sacrificing yourself for the good of everybody else. That is also scriptural. And so I think the the difficulty here, especially in our culture, is the assumption that the individualist mindset equals 
being a strong Christian when there are very good things in a collectivist mind frame that also align with scripture. And because that that body of, of scripture is looking at us as a body of the church, then we do need to think of ourselves as this collective. And, and that grates against what we have grown up in, what we live in every day in our society. Yeah, and I think we have to define collective carefully, that the loyalty is not to the group so much as loyalty to the ideas and the values that the group is espousing because there can be this pressure to just conform to the collective and and when the collective goes wrong when the culture goes wrong you're not it's not healthy just to be loyal to um the group to maintain the party line but i think that's not the same thing as individualism for individualism's sake. So there, there is a sense that some of these decisions or the, the group, the values or the boundaries that the group has together decided on, um, those can be guiding for us insofar as they are healthy and we need to submit ourselves to them. And I've noticed this particularly in two things that happened recently um, that just really caught my attention about how we are really dispositioned to put the weight on the individual to make decisions that in the past were the purview of the collective. And here, let me let me give you an example. So I don't know, it was maybe earlier this month, there was a judicial nominee before um, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and her name is Naomi Rao. I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation. I only read it. Um, so she was before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And as part of her um, questioning, Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, asked her for her personal views on um, same-sex relationships and, and just really pressed her. And she was very taken off guard by this and said, well, I don't quite understand your question. I don't think that it makes sense with what the law says. I'm here to be questioned about what the law says. And he just pushed and pushed her and said, do you personally believe that these relationships are sinful? Are they immoral? And, and she, she did write to kind of reframe the question to say, your question is wrong to begin with. But what, what I was thinking about while I was watching that was in the past, defining sin was never the privilege of the individual. So what I think is a sin doesn't matter. You know, in the past, it was that the church with the scripture would define the boundaries of Christian conduct, and then we would submit ourselves to that. And so you don't get to just say, well, I think this is sin and somebody else thinks it isn't sin and who can know and who can say. And, and it's been reduced to the individual. There, that also, I saw that also come up with um, controversy around Chris Pratt recently where he attends, um, you know, highly visible mega church um, and another, I forget her name, but another actress had kind of pushed back on whether he was a trustworthy person because his church had certain views about, um, you know, same-sex relationships and 
And he came out and said, I can't, I'm my own person. I can't, basically, he's like, I can't be defined by the views of my church or whatever, or I'm much larger than where I attend. And and I thought that that was so emblematic of how this individualism in our culture says all the decisions are going to be made by me. And there is a sense where some of these things cannot be decided on an individual basis. Not just like they shouldn't be, but they cannot be. Like they absolutely resist definition of individuals because then we end up living in our own isolated world. If I have a certain moral code and you have a distinct moral code and everyone in the nation has a different moral code that we are not being bound by these larger principles that we agree to and submit ourselves to, it, it just ends up in chaos. Right. So the the question really is here here is what we have known to be defined by scripture and are we yielding to it? But the question today is but is that really what scripture is saying? And so I think that's where people say, "Oh, I'm an individual then because I'll just decide what these things are are really saying." But that sense of um pressure or the weight. I liked how you said that, Hannah, how we have then the pressure as the individual to sort it all out for ourselves. And that's daunting to be to be under pressure to say, what do you think about every single um, action? And is that sinful or not? Um, and, and how does that affect how I am perceived? Am I part of... Um, Am I on the in on society or now am I on the out because of what I am yielding to as an individual to to the basically am I yielding to what scripture says, what has been known to be the creeds for and, for and that's not years on say, end. And that's not to say that everything's easily figured out. It's not to say that Every question that comes up in society isn't, doesn't need to be wrestled with. But I think the difference is we wrestle with it as a community. It, it doesn't have to be an isolated or a solitary process. And one thing that um, Alan Jacob gets at in his book, especially when he's talking about the difference between unhealthy community that requires conformity and you have to agree with them to stay in the inner ring. He does talk about healthy community and he says that the genuine community is open to thinking and questioning so long as those thoughts and questions come from people of goodwill. And so there is a culture of, of healthy thinking together through very difficult things and submitting ourselves to each other, not just in this authoritarian, I'm handing down the law, you all need to submit to this, but that there is actually the possibility of better thinking, of coming at a question from multiple angles if we come with goodwill and honest intention. The call to healthy connection and healthy community by way of processing and and wrestling, I love that. Um, that's the sort of vision that or um, ideal, I guess, that pulls me out from the fringes. As I mentioned earlier, how I can I can stay on the fringes and think, oh, I don't know why everyone is all excited about one thing or another. But that ideal of healthy community, so that I have a place where I can 
ask good questions, that I can learn and grow. You you talked about humility earlier. Being within a group where there are different ideas, that does require humility and it grows it within each person. So the the willingness to yield and to become part of a healthy group, that is an act of humility that is needed so that we can have the the right thoughts together that make us a better whole. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, pulling this out of the super spiritual and the real deep for a moment, and even just thinking about fashion again, um, as much as there are plenty of times that, you know, the group or a trend will want us to buy ugly coats, I have to say <laughs> that I've also learned a lot by watching other people's fashion. I have also encountered a lot of beauty and a lot of um, things that I would never have thought to put together or never have even been drawn. And and my thinking has been corrected by seeing other people's, what they're doing. And so I do think there is absolutely this place where the group and the community is essential to thinking because it challenges us in our own thoughts. And it inspires us to new things and, and to consider other lines of thought and other coats to wear, right? <laughs> Hopefully they're not the ugly ones. <laughs> well, I think for today, we've we've dug into this one enough. We're um, going to wrap it up for this edition, but we have more conversation coming on our Ready, Set, Think series. Make sure if you haven't tuned into the other conversations, check out the four episodes that we already have in the bank. There's Thinking It Through, Thinking Twice. That's with Jen Pollock-Michelle. Then there was Good Thinking and Thinking Creatively. So catch up on all those episodes. We would also love to hear what you have to say. We want you to join the conversation. So Hannah, what's our question of the day? Well, our question of the day is fashion related. And I want to know what was your biggest fashion mistake that you made because the group told you it looked good. When did oh you my buy word. the ugly coat? <laughs> and better yet, post a picture. Find a picture oh, I would love of it. the shoes, the pants, the shirt, the hair that in the moment you thought <laughs> was on point because the oh group my word. told you. I have things to contribute to that. I cannot wait to see <laughs> pictures. This will be wonderful. You can join us um, on Twitter, of course. We're at Persuasion CAPC. Post your pictures there. You can post them in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum if you're a member. And if you're not, you can become a member for just $5 a month and support these kinds of conversations and the good work that Christ and Pop Culture is doing. We want to say thanks to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Persuasion and all the shows in the Christ and Pop Culture podcast network. You can listen to them at ChristandPopCulture.com. You can go to iTunes and search for the shows there. And while you're there, you can just give us some stars and give us some feedback. We would sure appreciate it. We do thank all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part. 
by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.